Again, glad you could join us tonight. Uh, if we could open our Bibles to First Chronicles. Uh, open up to First Chronicles 7, but we're going to be looking at First Chronicles 18 and maybe even 18, 19, and 20 tonight. I know that sounds like a lot. Uh, tonight we're, we're going to be looking at chapters 18 and hopefully through 20. And that's pretty ambitious, especially for myself. But um, as we look at chapters 18 through 20, we see these conquests of David after he came into his authority, after he became king, after Saul um, was deposed and God had raised up David, that uh, after he became firmly established in his reign and in his kingdom, remember, it, it outlines for us in the next three chapters just the, the, some of the wars and the, and the conquests that David had. And um, remember that this, the book of Chronicles, uh, the, the, the thrust behind it is different than when we were in, in Samuel and, and in Kings, especially, excuse me, in Samuel, because it's, it's really exploiting this whole idea of David's reign and specifically um, the reign of Judah and, 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 King, and David's dynasty, if you will, which was a never-ending dynasty. And... Um, and so it shows for us these different places, these different kings that David had deposed and defeated, and all of the booty, if you will, all of the gold and the silver and the bronze and all of these things from those conquests, David is going to dedicate those things to the Lord and to the Lord's house and if you remember, David could not build the house of God. He, he had it in his heart. In fact, if you look at with me with, uh, in chapter 17, uh, David told uh, the prophet Nathan that he had on his heart to build God a temple, to build him a house. And so Nathan, being very excited about this and thinking it would be a slam dunk idea, he said, David, go do all that's in your heart. And, and, and that night, the Lord spoke to Nathan and says, Nathan, I need to tell you, to go talk to David. And, and this is what God said. He says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, this is in verse um, uh, 7 of chapter 17. He says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have given you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. And nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, also I will subdue all your enemies. And furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house, David. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you who will be, one, be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever." And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. God, obviously speaking of Saul. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established 
forever. And so David here is, uh, God has given him this covenant that from his own loins, from David, that there would be a seed that would rule the throne of Judah forever. Now, obviously, in the very physical, the very natural, the very immediate, that would be applicable to Solomon, his son. But it's also speaking way beyond Solomon because it speaks of forever. And so there has to be someone who's going to live forever. (laughs) And it's speaking of Jesus Christ, the one who will rule and reign forevermore. And what do you think about that? Don't you like that? I love the idea of Jesus reigning in the world right now. And he's allowing man his his fling right now, but it's all going to come to a crashing end. Man cannot govern himself. I don't know if you've noticed that. But man is not capable of doing things right. And so David had it in his heart to build a house. And so chapter 18 through 20 outlines these conquests and these wars. And, and, um, and David would use, like I said, the spoil from those conquests to give to Solomon, his son, all these things that he, he would dedicate to the Lord from all of these battles so that Solomon could build the temple after David's passing. Now, it is not mentioned explicitly in chapter 17, what I just read to you. It's not mentioned explicitly in this Davidic covenant that God had made with David as to the reason why David wasn't to build the temple. Many passages it has that David wasn't allowed to build the temple, but there's really no, uh, you know, there's no reason here. God doesn't give it, to him, give it to us in here. But I believe um, that, um, well, let me just say this. There are only three passages in the Old Testament that tell us specifically why David wasn't to build the temple. Only three, and you can write them down right now, and I'm going to read one to you, but write them all down now, because there's many that talk about him wanting to build a house, but not being able to. The first one is in First Chronicles chapter 22, beginning in verse 5 through 10, and the other one is First Chronicles 28, verses 2 and 3. And the final one is in 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3. But let me read to you the first time it appears. And it's in 1 Chronicles 22, beginning in verse 5. David here speaking, and let me just read it to you for the sake of time. So David said, and he was before all of Israel, and he says, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent. Notice that. David, was he would not have anything done in a beggarly way. He wanted the house of God to be a resplendent, beautiful edifice. It was, it was supposed to be the, the greatest thing. And he goes, and famous and glorious throughout all countries, David would say. And he says, I will now, notice what David said, I will now, I will now, David said, make preparation for it. Because remember, we just read that God says, David, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. But your son will build me a house. And this is the reason why. So then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, as for me, it was in my mind. So David here is speaking to his son Solomon, very young at this time, before all of Israel. And he says to him, my son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood 
and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all of his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And see, God has been faithful to his end. And even though... You know, Judah had failed miserably. And even though the very last king on the throne of Judah was, was Hezekiah, or I'm sorry, Zedekiah, the very last king, and then they went into captivity for 70 years in, in Babylon, there hasn't been a king on the throne since then. Even to this day, there, there's not a king. There, there may be a, 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 a prime minister or somebody who is the president, but no king from Judah has been on the throne. And do you know that there is a king that is coming? There is a king that is coming, and we know his name. What is his name? That's right, he's coming. Yes, he's coming for the church, but he's also going to return physically to the earth at the end of time, at the end of those, uh, this tribulation that the Bible tells us is coming. But we are going to be taken up, spend the time with him for those seven years of his wrath being poured out on a world that has rejected him. But we will come back with him. And then he will set up his thousand-year reign, or we call it the millennial reign of Christ. And he is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem forever even on into the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. There's a lot here, but let let me just say this, that he, from that point onward, will be the king, and he will be the ruler over everything forevermore. I'm excited about that. How about you? But David wasn't to do it. He was a man of war. He had shed much blood, but he says, you know, you're Solomon, your son. I want him to do it. I want him to begin it. And so... David, from all of these wars that we're going to read of now, chapters 18 through 20 of 1 Chronicles, he's going to take all of that loot, if you will, and he's going to store it away, the brass, the gold, the silver, all the precious gems and stones, he's going to put it away. Because David's heart was such that, if I can't build it for you, Lord, then I'm going to do everything I can before I close my eyes on this earth. I'm going to do everything I can to give everything to Solomon. I want to give him the blueprints. I want to give him all the workers. I want to give him everything that I can so that when he is ready and the time is right, he's going to have everything and all they got to do is get at it and build it. And that's what David did. And I love that. David wasn't even concerned about himself. Do you ever notice that? He, he was so other-centered. You know, he, 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 you know, through the second attempt, he brought the Ark Covenant into Jerusalem, into Zion, and that was his golden moment, you know. And it was a glorious moment for Israel. And he was content. He's like, Lord, I want to build you a house. I want to put this, this ark, which is our, you know, a very representation of who you, you, know, you being with us. We want to put that in this new temple. But he was not to see it. But his heart was, I'm going to do everything else. I'm going to do everything I can. And, and, and that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you think about your sons and your daughters. 
and you think, you know, what can I do, Lord? You know, I, I'm, I'm middle-aged or whatever age, I don't know what I am. But, you know, you, you get to the point where you're just like, I, 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 I got a house and I'm living and now I want to start thinking about my, my, my sons and my daughters, right? You want to think about them. You want to pour into them. Give them a leg up so that when they start to take off, they've already got a good foundation, a good padding, if you will. So they don't have to start off from the ground And I just think that is so wonderful. So notice. So David is going to go after he's firmly established. He's going to be going and there's going to be these conquests that David is going to do. He's going to be rooting out enemies that God had uh, condemned long ago. And condemned, and, and, you, and you may think to yourself, well, that's kind of cruel, isn't it? God doesn't condemn anybody. Well, there comes a point in a person's life or in a nation where they have gone over the, the Rubicon, and only God knows what that is. Uh, you know, some point in their life where they have rejected Christ, they've rejected God so much, and they said, no, I want to do it my way. You know, they sing the Sinatra song, I do it my way. And God will, you know, if you say that long enough and your heart is such, he's going to give you your way. Because he's not going to violate your conscience. He's going to let you do what you want to do. What is, the, what is the thing on your heart that you really want? If you're smart, you will say, well, Lord, is it really good for me to have what I want? Is what I want even your will for my life? Well, that's a novel concept. Does God have a plan for your life individually? Yes, he does. And it's our great joy to find out what it is. And when you do, you're going to be the most blessed person in the world, I can tell you that. No matter what it is, whether it's to be a worker, it doesn't matter what it is, a, a home, you know, a, a housewife, a, a worker, a dentist, it doesn't matter, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, it doesn't matter what it is. But when you find what it is that he's called you to do, you will be faithful and you will be an open vessel that he can use in any of those places to share the truth and the love of God to a world that has fallen. And that's what God's plan is. And when you find out what that plan is for your life, you will be blessed. I can assure you that. And so David, notice in verse 1 of chapter 18, he goes, After this, after this, that David attacked the Philistines, and he subdued them and took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. So if you remember back in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines had uh, removed or stolen the Ark of the Covenant from the children of Israel and uh, had it uh, apart from them for a number of years and, um, and now, David, many years later, is now, after he has brought the ark back, it's almost been a hundred years now since it's, it's gone through the Philistines and been in the house of Obed-Edom and Abimelech, and, and, and now he is, he's got the ark in, in, his, in a tent that he had pitched for it there in Zion on the Temple Mount, that now David is going to attack the Philistines. He's going to attack those who spoiled Israel. And you maybe think, well, that's just like the world, isn't it? You know, that, that, that's just like what the world does. You attack me, I attack you, and, and so it goes on into infinitum. But, but there's a reason that David attacked the Philistines. It wasn't just because he hated them. It wasn't because he had a vendetta against them. It's because God told him to do it. 
God told the Israelites to wipe out, remember, those nations in Canaan long ago. And Israel, up to this point in, in the narrative here, when David is on the throne, they hadn't been faithful driving out the, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and, and others. They hadn't been faithful doing it. And God told them to go and wipe out everything, man, woman, and child, beast, everything. And why did he do that? Is it just because he's an angry God? And I have to say this because there are some here or some that may be watching or hearing later on that don't understand this. Those folks, those people in Canaan had been going on for hundreds of years, continuing without repentance, doing horrible atrocities, sinning against God by worshiping false gods and and sacrificing their children. Yes, postpartum abortion was really the name of the game. They didn't have all the fancy tools we have now to kill the child in the womb. They waited until it was born, and then they sacrificed it to their false god. That is history, and that is the truth. It's right here in the Bible as well. And so they've been doing that for hundreds of years, and there is a point where God says, that's enough. And if you don't believe me, let me read to you. You can write it down if you want, but let me read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Just look at the first five verses. So God is telling Moses to tell the children of Israel. They're right on the precipice. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They're literally on the east side of the Jordan River. They're about ready to cross over west into what you and I would know as Israel. But at that time, it was called Canaan. And it was filled with those seven nations that have been continuing in their idolatry. Notice what it says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, God says, says, and has cast out many nations before you, and he lists them, the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them, you shall make no covenant with them, nor show them mercy. You shall Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their son for your daughter, or um, excuse me, nor take their daughter for your son. For they, here's the reason, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. And so that is what David is continuing to do because his ancestors, the Jews, had not been faithful in completing that. He is continuing to go against this perennial enemy of the Philistines. And he's going to go after them. And why? Is it just because he had a vendetta? No, it's because God told him long ago to go after them. And we're going to see toward the end of chapter 20, Lord willing, the the really strange thing. uh, The people that mingled with the Philistines. We're going to see this and we're going to understand the reason for God's great vengeance against these people and against this people group. But let's go back into verse 2. We'll get to that. So then, so then David defeated Moab. The Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. So he didn't wipe them out. He just defeated them, but he allowed them to live. And one thing you have to remember about David is he wasn't a bloodthirsty man. 
There have been men in history that have been very bloodthirsty, generals that have been bloodthirsty, but David was not one of them. He was a God-fearing man. He was not a bloodthirsty man. He was a man of compassion, and he would go to war if he had to, and he would go to war against enemies that were attacking him or ones that God told him to attack. He was faithful in doing that, but I don't think it's something that he enjoyed doing. And so he brought the Moabites into a uh, situation where they would pay tribute to him for, uh, for not destroying them. They would just pay him, you know, his kingdom money. And remember that David's great-grandmother was a Moabite. You remember what her name was? Ruth. Yes, the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Gentile, and she is David's great-grandmother. And so also during that time that David, remember, was being hunted by Saul before he came into his kingdom, David protected his parents by sending them to the king of Moab to protect them. Because David's life and his family became in jeopardy because of Saul's hatred for him. So what does David do? He sends his mom and dad and has the king of Moab at that time take care of him or take care of his parents. Now, the relationship between David and the, king of Mo, the Moabite king was uh, agreeable at that time to some extent. But now things are not so agreeable. But it's interesting, isn't it, that even his great-grandmother's people that he came from, now he is going against them. But notice he didn't kill them all. He, he brought them under tribute. And you can read about that actually in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. It, it actually spells out what I just shared with you, and you can, you can read about that. But going on in verse 3, notice it says, And David defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. So Hamath is, is, a, is a city that is directly east of, uh, if you were looking at a map of, of Israel and the Mediterranean there, right to the east of the island of Cyprus, uh, right in, uh, in, into Israel, going about 16 miles or so uh, inland, you, th there was a, a town by the name of Hamath, and it was right on the Orontes River. And so this is uh, the place uh, where Hamath was. And David took from him, this king, uh, took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, one thing you might want to put in your Bible right off on uh, verse 4 there is 2 Samuel 8, verse 4. And the reason for that is, is when it comes to numbers, and we've, as we went through First and Second Samuel, we, we looked at the, um, the unfortunate corruption of the text and sometimes 7,000 could mean 700, or 700 could mean 7,000. And just with the stroke of a pen in Hebrew, you can change a number to something small to something quite large. And they believe that's what happened here. But I believe in, uh, in 2 Samuel, it says that there were actually 700 horsemen. So if you compare those scriptures, you might be confused, but don't let that confuse you. Um, it was probably 700 because it makes sense with the numbers that we're talking about here. 1,000 chariots and 7,000 horsemen, that makes a little more sense than 7,000 horsemen. Um, so just something to remember. And so, and notice that David hamstrung all the, the chariot horses except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. And when he did this, 
And the reason why he did this was to make the horses of no value anymore. When you cut the hamstring on a horse, he's not really good for anything. Even after he heals, he's not going to be a, a horse that you're going to take into battle. You may, you may have him you know, haul things around, little light loads, but he's not going to be a war horse any longer. And so, in, in fact, um, uh, David wasn't even supposed to multiply horses for himself. And it says that he took here a hundred, and God had told uh, Israel long ago in Deuteronomy 17 that, he, that the, the king who he would call and the kings of Israel should not multiply horses for themselves, nor multiply wives. And who got in trouble over that? Solomon. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Think of that. Think of how many anniversaries you have to remember. Every day there's an anniversary probably for at least two gals. So you better have flowers and, and you know, a diamond ring in your hand, right? So going on in verse 5 here. So when the Syrians of Damascus, they came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And remember, Damascus is uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to look at a map of Israel, uh, there's the Sea of Galilee. And then over east... Uh, several miles is Damascus. And, um, and so this is uh, where the Syrians, um, uh, their, their capital city, and they came to Damascus to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. And notice David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed, oh, I think I just read that, didn't I? Um, I did read that already. So David killed 22,000 Assyrians. And um, often when two or more people groups or countries had a common enemy, they would join forces. So that's really what we're seeing here. If, 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 a, if a country or a, a king had an enemy and somebody was coming against them, they would enlist other kings of other countries to come to their aid. And oftentimes they would even pay them and they would become hired mercenaries. And so that's really what we're seeing here. And because they saw David and, is, as is, and Israel, excuse me, as the enemy, but they're not going to prevail against David. They're not going to prevail because God was going to be faithful to his promise that he had made to David, and David was faithful to carry it out. He was faithful to carry it out. And then David, verse 6, put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. And the Syrians became David's servants. Notice that David didn't just go and kill them. He, he made them his servants. He, he, again, he wasn't bent on bloodshed. And David took the shields, notice, of gold that were of the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. So this is one battle where we see him not only conquering them and causing them to pay tribute, but he took all of the loot that they, they obtained and David would hide those things. He would take those things. And, and notice it says, David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Tibhath and from Chun, cities of Hadadezer. David brought a large amount of bronze which, with which Solomon made the bronze sea in the pillars and the articles of bronze. And so there we see it right there. Just these articles that he would plunder from their enemies, he would reuse those and melt those things down and recast them into articles for the temple. And now when King Tal, verse 9, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated 
All the army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadoram, his son, to King David to greet him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Tau. So now Tau is really happy that David is taking care of business. And so um, Hadoram brought with him all kinds of articles of gold and silver and bronze. And King David also dedicated these, notice, verse 11, to the Lord, along with the silver and the gold that he had brought from all these nations. Notice, from Edom and from Moab and from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines and from Amalek. So pertaining to these verses, uh, verses 7 through 11, we see uh, the materials that, that would be brought uh, to uh, Solomon uh, to build the temple. And you might want to just write, I'd like to read to you just First Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 5. You might want to make a note of that, but let me read it to you. First Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 5. So furthermore, it says, King David said to all the assembly as he is about ready to uh, bring Solomon, he's got Solomon out there and they're about ready to do uh, dedicate the temple. He said, My son Solomon, whom, whom alone God has chosen... He is young and inexperienced, and the work is great because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now for the house of my God, notice, David says, I have prepared with all of my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasures of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 and talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses and gold for things of gold and silver for things of silver and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? And what a great charge that was. What a great question. And even though we don't have a temple necessarily to build like David is, I would ask you the same question. Who among you tonight are willing to consecrate yourself to the Lord? To re-consecrate your heart to Christ. You know, our world has a way of just wearing away at us, doesn't it? And it, it, it has a way of just tearing down all the things that God wants, that he's invested in you. And the devil's desire is to steal that from you. His desire is to take it from you, to keep you from it, to keep you from the promises of God, to keep you from the assurance of your own salvation, to keep you from the truths of God that are everlasting and that will come to pass. He wants to hide those things from you. He wants you to live in darkness. He wants to make your life miserable. He wants you to stay content with just the things that you have and not look for the future. He wants you to remain in your sin and, and maybe even habitual sin that you've been struggling with. He wants to keep you there and keep you like a caged bird. But God does not want that. He wants to set you free. So which among us tonight... And you don't have to answer that question, but in the privacy and the sanctity of your own heart. Lord, am I, where have I gone, Lord? Where is my life anymore? Have you ever felt that way? Sometime in your life, you're just like, 
feeling washed up, feeling unworthy, feeling like I'm never going to have victory over this or over that, and I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. And Lord, are you even there? And all this talk of UFOs and all this stuff, Lord, what, I don't know what to do with myself, and I'm just confused, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm not even sure if you're with me. Long ago, I gave my heart to you at the Billy Graham crusade, but now I don't know if I'm even saved anymore. And which one of you will consecrate yourself today? Again, I can tell you, folks, that the Lord loves you. And there's no shortcut to this. But it starts one step at a time. And that's just getting alone with God, confessing your sin, your need for him. Will you do that? And just say, Lord, I want to begin again, even. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with beginning again. Because if you've made a mess of your life, even as a Christian, there's, there's a good time, to, a, a good time is right now, just to stop and say, I want to start over. And God is like, okay. I don't have a problem with you starting over again. Because wherever I, I, I'm going to take you from glory to glory, from that moment, I'm going to continue to work in you and reveal myself to you and to love you and to forgive you as you go. Don't worry about your past. Don't worry about your failings. You just confess them to me. And what is the promise? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just not only to forgive us, but then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you understand? He won't look at your sin again. He will never look upon it and rub your nose in it. The devil will and your flesh will because you have a memory and you remember and the devil going the devil is saying oh I remember too do you remember when do you remember when you were at Kent State and the things that you did do you remember when you were in that Cadillac in that GTO in 1964 do you remember what you did God is not going to remember it why? Because he can forget it perfectly because of the blood of his son. He chooses to and he will. So moreover, verse 12, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah. Remember, Zeruiah was David's sister. Yes, he had a sister and her name was Zeruiah. And she had three sons, Joab, Abishai, and uh, another um, and. Uh, Abishai, Joab, and Asahel, and all three of these were in David's cabinet, and Joab was the captain of his army. And it's interesting here that Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, says, says that killed these um, 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And, um, and in 2 Samuel chapter 8, it, it ascribes that victory to David. But that's really no big deal because if a captain gains a victory, who gets the glory? Not the captain, the king. <laughs> so either way, this is fine because Abishai was glad to give the glory to God and to his head, who was David at the time. But both are true. And so verse 13, he also put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved. And the idea here is the Lord would save, and he would also defend, and he would also deliver David. Do you understand that? David was invincible. As God was still using him, and by the way, that's true for us too, when you are his, when you are Christ's, you are invincible until your last day. And we don't know what our last day is, but until your last day, you are unstoppable, you are no one can touch you. And David is a great example of that. 
He came this close to death many times when he was being hunted by Saul. And God preserved him. And God sent him out in the battle. He wasn't one of these guys who sat in a, in a, in a fancy leather executive chair in a high rise while all of his men went out. No, David was out there in the front of them with his sword. And what a leader is that? He wasn't going to sit back and go, oh, I don't want to go. I'm going to sit here and play Nintendo. No, he was in the battle. He was a man. That's what men are supposed to do. Men are supposed to go out to battle. It goes on in verse 14 now, and it talks about David's administration. So David reigned over all Israel and administered judgment and justice to all his people. And this was a good thing because David, in spite of his moral failure, he, um, his moral failure with Bathsheba and Uriah, um, in spite of those, in spite of his moral failure in that incident, those two incidences, he was a man of justice and judgment. He was fair. He was compassionate. And this is truly an amazing trait to have as a leader of so great a people. This is something that God knew of David's heart. That's why God could call David by name. That's why Samuel had to wait there as Jesse's sons are all standing before him. They're like, you got seven sons here, but God hasn't chosen any one of them. Do you have any more sons? Ah, we have David. He's out in the field with a sheep. Don't really want to see him, do you? Yes, I do want to see him because we're not, we're not going to sit down until he comes. And the Lord said, that's the one. And isn't it wonderful that God could see in the heart of this young teenager, David? Nobody else could see it. And I love the fact that God chose a shepherd Someone who could herd his people. Someone who knew how to care for the sheep. He would leave the 99 and go after the one that was astray. Characteristics of our Savior Jesus, right? That's why Jesus is the good shepherd. He went after you, didn't he? He went after you and I when we were running amok in the world, thinking we had it all together, turning our back on God and doing only what felt good. Remember the old saying, if it feels good, do it? Well, if you follow that mantra, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. But David was one of these men. He was a fair, he was a compassionate man. Proverbs 29 verse 2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Are you rejoicing today? No. I'm not. I love what it says in Psalm 75, verse 6. For exaltation, or in the King James, it says promotion. For promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west or from the south, but God is the judge. Notice, he puts down one and exalts another, and that's exactly what he did with David. But God knew the heart of Saul, and he also knew the heart of David, and God chose David for these characteristics of his heart. And God knows your heart. He knows your motives as well, doesn't he? The Bible tells us that. In Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms, it just speaks of God's omnipotence. His all, he's all-powerful, and he knows all things. He can't learn anything, because he knows everything. And he knows my thoughts afar off. He knows what I'm going to speak tomorrow. That brings great comfort to my heart. You want to know why? Because if God is that way, if that is truly who God is, if he is who he says he is, the, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, meaning from the very beginning uh, to the very end of time, if he is the Alpha and the Omega and he knows all things and he can tell me tomorrow what I'm going to say at this time, 
He can do that. And if he's able to do that, and he still loves me today, doesn't that give you great confidence, knowing that he knows the dumb thing you're going to do in two days from now? Or maybe the thing you're going to, some sin issue in your life, you're going to commit tomorrow. And yet, knowing that, if I were God, I would say, well, I'm not going to let you get, get away with that. What do you mean I haven't done it yet? Oh, but you're going to do it, and I'm going to squash you now for it. See, that's man. But God is like, no, I love you right now, even though I know things in the future. But when you get there and you mess up, you just call out to me. You confess that sin, and we can be restored in fellowship. And that can happen because of the blood of Jesus Christ. No other way possible can that happen except through the blood of Christ, right? And to me, that is what gives me great hope. It encourages my heart because I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I don't have to worry about future failures and future sin because God has got it covered. He knows what I can't possibly know about myself. Didn't he say to Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you? There's a frightening thought. Before the egg and the sperm even came together, he's saying, I knew you, Jeremiah. I knew, I knew your whole life. I could write a book and tell you exactly what's going to happen. I could write you a journal ahead of time. And that's what God has done for us in his word, hasn't he? He's written down history before it happens. He goes, what God can do that? Is there any God who can do that? I know of none. No one can do that. The devil can't do that. He's not all-powerful. He's not in all places at once. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He has nothing upon God. He's a created being. Only God. Exalt our Savior. Exalt the King of kings. Exalt the Lord of lords. Get raptured. Get caught up in who he is, how beautiful he is. And his thoughts for you are peace and not for evil. That's what Jeremiah 29, 11 says. Rejoice in that. Can we do that? The rain is now falling. Can you hear it? <laughs> what a blessing. So, verse 15. So Joab, his nephew, is now the general of his army. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. And Shavshah was the scribe. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers at the king's side. So David had his family in his cabinet, and they all knew David. They all knew who he was, and they, knew, they could represent him well, hopefully. But these Cherethites and Pelethites, these are some interesting people. They were basically David's bodyguards. And they were mercenaries from foreign countries, and they would come and they would serve to be his bodyguards, and that's literally what they were. And so verse 19, or chapter 19, let's look at verse 1. And it happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died, and his son reigned in his place. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, because his father showed me kindness. And so David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to Hanun in the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. I just want to show you, share with you a couple things here. But number one, notice the grace and the compassion of David. You know, here he is uh, showing compassion uh, to the people of Ammon. 
And um, his motives weren't evil, but the princes of the people of Ammon, as we will see, they thought that David was just being kind to them so that he could secretly attack them at some point, which was totally wrong. But I could understand in the natural why they might think that, but it was far from David's heart. So notice the compassion he has given to this son of, a, of another leader who has died. And the second thing is, remember that Ammon was the people group that came from an incestuous relationship between Lot, Abraham's nephew, that Lot had with his daughter. Do you remember what it told us in Genesis 19 that they got their father drunk and, and, and they, each of these girls slept with their father? And as a result of that union, one of the sons was named Moab and the other one was called Ben-Ami and he is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. So these are the people that David is ministering to and trying to be kind to. And third thing, the children of Israel weren't to take the children of Ammon's land when they came into the promised land. So David's initial motive was not to take their land at all. He was just wanted to be kind and reach out to this young man who now inherited his father's throne. But they weren't to meddle with their land. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19. You can read that. But notice in verse 3, and it says, And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? And obviously this wasn't David's heart at all. But it didn't stop the suspicion. It didn't, didn't stop the conspiracy that was there. So therefore, Hanun took David's servants, shaved them, and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. So this is obviously a very humiliating, very shameful thing to do to David's men. And I, I can tell you this about David. <laughs> he was a compassionate and gracious man, but when you came against him for no cause, you better start thinking about moving to another state. <laughs> Because David, you're that close to death. <laughs> and, um, uh, and certainly these men were, were playing with fire here, but David had a long wick. He wasn't, wasn't willing to just lash out in wrath. So then some went and they told David about the men that had happened. And he sent to meet them. And because the men were greatly ashamed... And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. So when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, I love what it says in the King James. I think it says when, when they knew that they began to stink before David. I, I like that. I, I, sometimes I like the King James uh, version a lot more than the, than the new King James that uh, when this happened, Hanun and the people of Ammon, then they sent a thousand talents of silver to do what? To hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syrian Maacah, and from Zobah. So now they're hiring mercenaries now to come against David, when David had it in his heart to not do any of this stuff. So they're presuming, they're presuming this stuff. And so they hired for themselves 32,000 uh, chariots with the, with the king of Maacah and his people who came and encamped before Mediba. This is on the, um, at the northern tip of the Dead Sea, uh, about 16 miles to the east is this place called Mediba. 
And also the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities, and they came to battle. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. And when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best. And he put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, who, remember, is his brother. And they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. So now they split up the army. One is going for, to, for, toward one, and one is going toward the other. And then he said, um, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. And then he tells them, be of good courage. And let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. And again, they didn't ask for this battle, did they? They didn't ask for it. The battle came to them. But David would finish it. (laughs) You know, they were provoking David. And we're going to see that because of their error, God was going to give David and his men victory. And notice again that David and his men... You know, uh, again, they didn't ask for this. The men of Ammon were foolish. They were suspicious. And the devil made sure that their suspicion took root in their hearts. To the end, why? To the end that Satan might destroy and snuff out David. Because Satan knew what you and I know today. We, we know the line of David and the prophecies that have been uh, shared with us for hundreds of years, even a few thousand years, concerning David and his line. Because ultimately through the line of Judah, through the line of David, would come the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Satan knew that from the very beginning. In Genesis 3.15, when God says, you know, uh, talking about the seed will crush your head, Satan, he'd already began thinking, well, who is this seed? And little by little, he began to find out, oh, it is through the line of Judah. And then he was there the day when Jacob said to Judah, from, you know, a lawgiver will not depart from your feet until Shiloh comes. Remember that in Genesis 49, verse 10? I've been saying that a lot, but that's a significant verse. Satan was there. He heard that. And so now he's got, out of all the people of the earth, I'm going to go after Judah. And who is this one? And all the prophecies about David and then about Jesus. Satan had to destroy David. And he had to destroy Jesus. He wasn't able to destroy David. He incited him against God, but he didn't destroy him. But who did he destroy? Or think he destroyed? Jesus. That was Satan's heart to destroy the root of David. And so these two generals, these two family members, these two nephews of David are saying, hey, may the Lord do what is good in his sight. We didn't ask for this battle, but now it's on our doorstep. We're going to finish it. And if God gives us victory, great. If he doesn't, he doesn't. And so they went forward, and God was going to be on their side because they did not ask for this. So Joab, verse 14, and the people who were with him, they drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before them. Thank God, 
They didn't have to kill anybody. And then when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. So Joab went to Jerusalem. And now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river. And Shophak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. And when it was told David, verse 17, he gathered all Israel that crossed over the Jordan and came upon them and set up in battle array against them. And so when David had set up in battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And then the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 7,000 charioteers, 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians and killed Shophak, the commander of the army. And, And look at the end result here. All because the devil was able to get into the head of these princes of the people of Ammon to convince them, to convince the king that David's motives were false. Do you see how much bloodshed occurred? Because someone, these princes of the, of the children of Ammon, the devil was able to poison their minds. And as a result of them being poisoned, think of the thousands of lives that had died all because Satan had his way. Do you see just one person? What, what, did, what, did, what did Satan do with Adolf Hitler in the 40s? He got into his head. The Jews are the problem. Those sneaky Jews. And he went after them, killing over six million of them. And Satan did that in the mind of one individual. That's why it's really important for us to take diligence, you know, of our heart. Take guard of your heart, for from it come forth the issues of life. All the stuff, the hatred, the anger, the frustration, the lust, everything. Take care of your heart, Christian. As I say that to you, I say it to myself, boy, we need to take care of our hearts. Be careful what you take in. Through your eyes, through your ears, make sure those things are good and holy and pure. The purer, the better. Don't allow the enemy to whisper. Don't give him the opportunity to whisper deceit and rebellion in your heart. For when he does, there is always death. Do you understand? We see it here. Just a handful of princes now results ultimately. I mean, if you think of it, think of that. The devil speaking to a handful of these princes. And if someone were to say, do you know that as a result of what this seed that's in your mind right now, as a result of that, you're gonna, th- th- what's happening here is going to cause untold thousands of deaths. I would like to think that those guys would go, you know, I've got to really rethink what I'm thinking here. Do I have any reason to doubt David? Can I just have a talk with him? David, you know, we're, we're thinking because, you know, you're a king and a general and a, and a successful, you know, military man. What kind of assurances can we have that you're not just here to spy out the land and snuff us out? And I'm sure David would say, look, I've got no reason to do that. And they could believe David. But, ah, but the devil gets in the head, doesn't he? And that's where it all starts. It all starts up here. That's why even drug addiction, you know, pornography, everything, uh, adultery, it never starts with just, you know, sniffing glue as a kid. Then it's, then it's a joint, and then it's, um, you know, a needle in the arm, and then it's something else. 
And with adultery, you know, it starts with a look in the head, you know, a look of the eyes, and then thinking about it, and it manifests itself into this, into pornography, and then, it, then it, it, it's not satisfied with the images, now it has to act upon them. And then you see these things acting, acted out in society, and we have these animals on the loose. It starts in the head. So take guard over your heart and your mind. And don't let the enemy, don't let our culture that is so corrupt lead you down that road. Verse 19, and we'll stop here because we need to take communion. And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, notice they made peace with David. Finally, after thousands of people have died, they're going to make peace with David and become his servants. So the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. They realized that David, he didn't bring this upon himself, but because of our actions, because of these princes, because the devil got in their head and they obeyed it and they allowed it. And that's not who David was. Isn't it amazing how how easy it is to take things and and take them and twist them? And, And the devil, let me tell you something, he is very intelligent. Don't think for a moment. I don't want to exalt him by any means, but I'm going to tell you that apart from Christ, we are nothing in him. We are nothing to battle against him apart from Christ. We are sitting ducks apart from Christ. But now you are more than victorious in Christ. But it requires us to do some due diligence. It requires us to get on our knees. It requires us to know the things of God, to learn about the Lord, and to allow His Spirit to indwell us. Are you born again tonight? Have you received Jesus into your heart? Have you confessed your sins? And that's as easy as it gets, folks. Sarah, if you want to come up, we're going to start in just a minute. But you know, that, that's how easy it is. We, we, we just need to come into agreement with God for what we have done. I, am a, I, I sin because I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner. But if I confess my sins and I receive and believe in the blood of Christ who took the punishment for my sin once and for all on the cross, I can be saved. I can go to heaven. I can have the assurance of, 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 of the salvation that he has given me through faith in him. None of, nothing of me, none of my works make it it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And that's why we take communion. Because this, this cup and this bread that we're about to take in, we're, the, the things that he used, remember, in the upper room that night at the Last Supper, when they did the last Passover meal, Jesus took the bread. He did something different. He never done before. He took the bread and the cup, and he, he broke the bread, and he handed it to them. He said, this is my body broken for you. And they're scratching their head. What do you mean, broken for you? Well, just a few hours from there, from then, from that moment, just a few hours, they would whip him with a cat of nine tails. And they would plate the crowd of thorns around his head. They would punch him and beat him. And then they would crucify him. And then, and then his blood would be shed. So his body was broken. His blood was shed for us in our place. Do you understand the substitutionary thing that happened, the atonement that happened once and for all? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you put your faith in him? Well, if you are and you have received Christ, take communion. Take communion. 
Let's take the bread. This is symbolic, remember, of Jesus' body broken on the cross. Nothing mystical about it. It's just a token of what he has done. And as we take these tokens, we are basically saying, we believe, Jesus, what you did on the cross. We believe that that happened, and we believe what this signifies for us, that you paid the price, your body was broken, your blood was spilled for us. And so let's take the bread together. And Jesus, remember, he, he had the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant. The old covenant had passed. The new covenant was the covenant of his blood. Once and for all, no longer needing animal sacrifices over and over again. Once and for all, Jesus was, his blood was spilled for us. And we take this in remembrance of you, Jesus, and we thank you for it, Lord. And we believe in everything you said, everything you did everything that you have yet to do and the things that are written yet in the future that we look forward to, Lord. You are the promise keeper, Lord. And you're the one who loves us. You are the savior of our, of our soul. You're the captain of our salvation. Let's partake. And God, you are exalted high in the heavens. And Lord, we just thank you for that knowledge. And thank you, Lord, that even as we've exalted you now, Lord, there is a innumerable host in heaven doing the same, Lord, that we will join. And Lord, we look forward to that day to see you face to face. And Lord, help us, uh, all of us tonight, Lord. We pray that you would just go before us as we just sang, Lord. Go before us tomorrow and, and help us with things that we can't see nor understand. And Lord, to have the heart, Lord, your word says that you daily load us with benefits. Would you load us with benefits tonight, Lord, and give us the grace and the mercy for the things that yet ahead of us. And be that lamp into our feet and that light into our path, showing us the way tomorrow and all throughout the rest of this week and weekend. How we love you, Lord, how we thank you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.